the aware one by way of one ray or another. Many may touch directly and merge in a moment, but one or many will start by rays directly. Hello again. This is episode six of the Multiverse Cartographer Recitals. If this is your first time seeing one of these videos, <clears throat> you may wish to click up here and start at the beginning of the series. So, we've been on or around Venus for a while now. Before moving on to the next chapter of the Multiverse Cartographer, while we're in a Venusian mood, I'd like to read one chapter from Smaller Mouse, which will help fill in the gaps. As I mentioned in the first and second videos in this series, highlights from the New World Empire and the Interdimensional Coffee House were included among the short stories of The Small Gray Mouse and Smaller Mouse. Then, as an afterthought, I compiled the rest of the New World Empire and the Interdimensional Coffee House into the Multiverse Cartographer. The chapters which were already included in the Mouse books were the highlights, key, important moments of the story, without which the Multiverse Cartographer is a little like a frame without a picture. First, I'll read it, then I'll talk about it. Without further ado, Chapter 8 of Smaller Mouse, entitled Job. Inside the cave were 50 redbirds. Redbird was both the name of those red dragonfly-shaped hovercrafts of the mass self-discipline, and the colloquial name used for the soldiers of various rank who were their pilots. In this case, we're talking about the pilots, just in case you were confused. It'll get easier to tell the difference with time, given the context. Anyway, these 50 redbirds stood up quickly when the gate suddenly opened, unsure whether they were under attack or receiving an unexpected visitor, perhaps a surprise inspection from the higher-ups. When they saw the shimmering iridescent white uniform of old Telliard, they knew it must be the latter. They stood in two lines at full attention as he walked slowly into the hollowed-out hill, pressed a button on a small device causing the rocks to slide back into place behind him, and put the device in his pocket. Once the gate was closed, the senior-most of the Redbirds removed his helmet, prompting all of the others to do the same. Telliard slowly walked between them, piercing each with his sharp green eyes as they kept their gaze directly in front of them. 
After he reached the end of their line, he gazed forward at the jewels this place protected in such strict secrecy that only these fifty soldiers, and the royals like him, knew of their existence. Thirty white birds waited majestically for their purpose. These were the only hovercrafts of their kind. They were large, contained comfortable sleeping and living quarters, and could move far more swiftly than any red bird. They were identical, new, flawless, white, and reflected their surroundings like a white sheet of curved glass. They could move silently through the depths of the ocean or through outer space, and they had maroon leather interior. He turned to face the soldiers. As you were, the reds slouched their shoulders a bit and turned to face him, moving out of the lineup so that each could see him. Telliard pulled a device from his pocket, pointed it toward the gate, and pressed the button. As the gate slid open, the Reds looked back and forth at, at each other, wondering if they should put their helmets back on. Once it was open, Telliard shouted a single word. Now! The Reds tried to hide the fact that they were trying to discern the meaning of his command. Then every one of them fell to the ground with small tranquilizer darts in their necks. Twenty-nine denim-clad rebels walked through the gate and walked directly to Telliard. He smiled and looked at them, one by one, and they returned his gaze. All wore the glow of awareness of the import of this moment in history and of their pride in the sacrifice that they were about to make. They had just passed the point of no return. Telliard spoke. To Venus! The Venusians were tall and thin. They had some physical traits from their human ancestors and others from the greys, but their mental capacity was beyond either of them. A large crowd of them had gathered at the base of Maxwell Montes as if somehow they knew the rebels were coming. Many loud sounds shook the air as the white birds entered the atmosphere and shortly after landed there in front of them. The doors all opened and one from each craft approached them. No one thought to take a photograph, but many have since painted the scene from their imaginations. Telliard was the first to speak. He pointed to himself and waved toward the others. We are humans. Ye are our ancestors, one of the Venusians said in perfect English. Telliard and the rebels gasped. Thou speakest English? 
Another Venusian replied, We hear thy language in our minds. Teliard nodded slowly in amazement, then turned to look at one of the rebels behind him. Comest hither, Job, not much time now. Job walked up to one of the Venusians and handed him a small cube. This contains the history of we humans, millennia of technology and ideas, as well as a means of communication with all on earth who are not a part of the worldwide empire we call the machine. The Venusian said, we have been waiting for thee. Job bowed his head. Just then, many thunderclaps signaled the arrival of the redbirds in the sky above them. White-hot beams of light shot down toward the humans, carefully avoiding the Venusians. The Venusian with whom Job was speaking pulled him into their crowd, and three others covered him with their bodies. They brought him to the safety of the rocks at the base of the great mountain. Thirty reds parachuted down to reclaim the stolen white birds, and they all left as quickly as they came, leaving only one iridescent white and twenty-eight denim-clad corpses behind. Many of the Venusians looked up, and many looked down at the bodies. The one in the front looked at the small cube in his hand as he turned and walked away. The others followed. So, there it is. The introduction of Job in the New World Empire universe. You might recall, among the many events mentioned in the fourth chapter of the multiverse cartographer called Timelines, that this took place in 2463. Who am I kidding? None of us remember. But you can easily flip back a few pages and find it. 2463, Teliard and the Rebels arrive on Venus. For reference, this was 150 years after Arthur and Joseph Fathom rescued Charles Rubin and 330 years after the events of the chapter called Dr. Fathom. It was also 260 years before Blythe is born. The half-human, half-gray Venusians at that time had been living on Venus for 73 Earth years when Telliard arrived on Venus with Job and the other rebels. These rebels are in a sense the ancestors of rebels like Blythe, Baggett, and Simon, if not biologically, then spiritually. Telliard is part of the House of Anglesey, which in the New World Empire universe means part of the British royal family. He is not a king, but a cousin with all the perks and privileges that come with being a part of that family. This makes him something like the great, 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 several more greats uncle of King William VI and Lucy, who are contemporaries with Blythe and Charles the Grey 
and the main events of the story, which we'll be focusing on a bit later. The Whitebirds, here being introduced, will become the vehicles flown by the 11 royal families. Probably too subtle to be said to be implied is the fact that it's Anglesey that has produced the Whitebirds, and they will be the ones disseminating them to the other royal families who rule the various regions around the world. The table may be round, but underneath the surface, it does have a head. Or so they like to think. There are only 30 white birds, and the number is limited for a reason. Royal families that the British like and get along with may get two or three white birds to share among siblings, cousins, children, and so on. Other families may only get one. Those less willing to play ball with them may find themselves without one, flying around in mere redbirds, like the help. You might remember from the timeline that Yusuf, who is king of Hebrarabia in William VI's day, has enough white birds to spare as to be able to give one to his ex-mistress, Rosalind to soften the blow of his consenting to an arranged marriage between himself and a princess of the Russian royal family. One thing that's not written anywhere, but I'll just go ahead and tell you, is that King Yusuf had three white birds. After giving one of them to Rosalind, he has two. All of that comes much later, in the 27th century. Back in 2463, Teilhard of Anglesey and these 29 rebels, including Job, used the white birds to establish contact between the Venusians and the rebels on Earth, knowing full well they will probably have to die to accomplish it. The white birds are immediately reclaimed by Anglesey. The only survivor was not the royal Teilhard who made the heist possible, but one of the rebels, Job, who we know from the timeline was born in Ashtarut. A clue to the symbolism of his birthplace is in the third video in the series. Mama! Anyway, Job gives the Venusians a cube, explaining that it contains all human knowledge and the means to communicate with the rebels. In the timeline, it was mentioned that he will later give a mysterious rectangle to an as-yet-unborn Venusian, Charles the Grey. So, this chapter is, in the end, the story of how the 23-year-old human named Job ended up on Venus, in the caves at the base of Maxwell Montes how the Venusians ended up occasionally frequenting the simulated free worlds among the humans who live apart from the Empire, as well as an introduction to the Whitebirds, and the idea that there are some in the upper classes who actively oppose these power structures. The next part is where it gets a little abstract. I mentioned this book before. The New World Empire and the Interdimensional Coffee House. It contains the small gray mouse, 
Smaller Mouse and the Multiverse Cartographer within it, as well as a fourth section called Second Fruit and other bonus material. Second Fruit was the original story which later evolved into the New World Empire. In it, there is a good description of Joe and Lucy, the father and mother of Luke, as well as Luke himself, and of the day that young Job makes contact with Luke, who is, in a sense, his true self, much the same way that the true self of Krishna is Vishnu. The setting and plot of Second Fruit is very different from the New World Empire, but the part I'll read here today is neither the plot nor the setting, and it may help shed some light on the character of Job. As mentioned in the first episode of this series, Joe, Lucy, and Luke are like deities. They exist on another plane. Joe and Lucy, as deities, are not directly part of the New World Empire universe. In the New World Empire, the character called Lucy is a flesh-and-blood human princess, the daughter of King William VI of Anglesey, though her character and her role are very similar to that of Lucy in Second Fruit. A few years ago, somewhere in the astral, sat a man named Joe. In a room with no doors and no windows, tiled floor and curtains, there was a small, round, cherry wood table, like you might find in a restaurant. There were three chairs of the same type of wood as the table. Here, in this place, things were solid like on earth. Somehow, those who came and went from this place were so very fixated on things being the way they were there that the place never changed form, never faded away. A son and mother came and went, but Joe dwelt there permanently. Anyhow, these days he would take the form of a man in a light blue, short-sleeved, button-up shirt, black slacks and shiny black shoes, a graying beard, and a glazed-over, numb sort of expression. He had taken a liking to the sensation of cheap coffee with NutraSweet and powdered coffee creamer in a styrofoam cup. He would pour it into his coffee and stir it with one of those little red stir straws around and around and around. Very rarely would he actually take a sip of it he would just stir it around and around and around. Before him on the table was a glass screen hovering just above the table, seeming a little out of place. 
Like a man addicted to his favorite TV show, he would stare into the pane of glass. Through the pane of glass, he had access to everything that went on in the past, present, and future in the place we call Earth. Numbly, staring, flipping the channels with his will, he would listen to people's thoughts, watch their actions, watch them gambling, driving, or watching movies, revolutions, jihads, raves, insurance seminars. Through an incomprehensibly vast mind, he saw it all, all at once. Lucy, to all appearances, was his wife. Lucy appeared there. She was constantly wrapped in her agendas, giggling to herself, with long black hair, mascara, ruby red lipstick matching her red velvet dress, jewelry, gold, gems inlaid in rings, and a necklace. Whatever her mood was, was written all over her in her jewelry. Almost oblivious to Joe, she appeared there and sat down at the table. Joe didn't quite smile, but it was evident that he was a good deal more entertained by Lucy than anything in his pane of glass. What's new? he asked her, already knowing where she'd been and why. Lucy held out her hand to the table. A very ancient-looking golden chalice appeared, inlaid with the same jewelry she wore. Holding her hand over it, out of her palm poured thick black oil. When it was full, a match appeared. She lit it with a long red Lee press-on nail dropped it into her chalice, and it burned. Have you ever maybe gotten a little high and then poured half and half into a fresh cup of coffee and noticed that it looked like galaxies forming? That's kind of where I was going with this, indirectly. If you saw the first video in this series, then you already know that Joe is actually God. Well, the older generation. He becomes new again in his son, Luke. Joe tried his best, but now he's given up, as if stuck working a dead-end job. For those who've read the book of Job in the Tanakh, you know that, at least in that particular story, he was very easily manipulated by the adversary. Well, in this story, things have progressed in that same direction, and now he's married to her. She is the domineering one. He is like the drones that control the machines, the office and factory workers, slaves to the almighty dollar. 
Though now able to access all the knowledge and entertainment which mankind has to offer through a magic screen, the internet. But this does little to make his situation any better, other than to distract him a little from the hopelessness of his situation. He is much like those who are made in his image, tolerating the powers that be, like good adherents of Romans chapter 13. You might even say that he is like an anti-union blue-collar worker who passively accepts the oppression of the billionaire class, loyally casts his vote in their favor out of a misguided sense of loyalty, without any thought of seizing the means of production, unconsciously drinking neo-colonial caffeine and carcinogenic NutraSweet out of a non-biodegradable styrofoam cup. You might say all that. I wouldn't say that, but you might interpret it that way. That he is perhaps the God which is made in the image of such men. Using the old-fashioned, gender-neutral, all-inclusive usage of the word men, I mean. Humans. Passive humans. Perpetuating evil through diffusion of responsibility without really benefiting from it beyond surviving. Opting for living in a studio apartment rather than in a tent. So that's Joe. And then there's Lucy. Lucy's just having a ball. Abstractly, the dynamic between them was originally intended to be an expression of an idea put forth in the neophyte ceremony of the old Victorian magical order called the Golden Dawn, which is that unbalanced power is evil and oppression, but unbalanced mercy is weakness and lack of will, and would allow evil to exist unchecked, thereby making itself the accomplice of evil. End quote. Mercy is associated in that context with the color blue and chesed. Power in this context is the red sephira, geburah. This is how they behave when they are unbalanced. So to become balanced, they must be directed by the sephira between them, which has direct access to the unknowable. That third sephira is yellow, and it is called Typhirid. So, a few pages later, we meet young Job and Luke. In Second Fruit, Job was on an airplane at the time, which he did not know was about to crash. But this event did not take place for Job in the New World Empire. Continuing, Job closed his eyes. Luke wore a yellow leisure suit, slicked black hair, and a genuine game show host smile. In the distance, the passengers screams. Job asked, Why have you come in this form? Luke disappeared. After a time, a wise old man with a flowing gray beard and a lantern appeared. Would you prefer this form? Job chuckled. I guess it doesn't matter. Yellow suit. Luke nodded. You're absolutely right. 
Luke led Job into a checkered room. He showed him two tables. The first was red. Hovering above it was a red grid on a blue earth. The second was yellow. Hovering above it was a yellow grid on a yellow earth. Job saw the second fruit in his own hand and looked up at Luke and realized he was looking at himself. Luke's smile disappeared from his face. Luke held his arms out to the two possible worlds. It's your choice. Job opened his eyes, opened the lavatory door, saw the airplane in flames. Luke walked through a door into the room. Joe wore his blue work suit, a graying beard, and a plastic smile. Hello, Luke. Luke snapped with both hands and pointed them at his father. Hey! Luke took a sip of cool water from a champagne glass. How are things? Joe began to stir his coffee. Well, I just found out my son has a body. Luke nodded and sat in the central chair. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I was going to mention that. How's mom? Lucy appeared, furious. She sat across the table from Joe. Now you have some subtextual backstory behind the character of Job. Typhirit has decided to incarnate in order to find a way to sort out this horrifying imbalance, which is the expression of Joe and Lucy's dysfunctional dichotomy. Do note, though, that none of this is in the Mouse books, nor in the New World Empire universe. This was simply for you to know who Job is meant to be and where he came from, other than Ashtarut. It is safe for you to assume that at some point in the youth of the New World Empire's Job, he established contact with his true self in much the same way. Lastly for today, I'll read a very short chapter from Smaller Mouse called Joe and Lucy, which is an excerpt from a conversation between Luke and his father Joe and his mother Lucy. When Lucy is talking, the text is always red. When Joe is talking, the text is blue. When Luke is speaking, the text is yellow. Joe and Lucy. Lucy speaking. Listen to your father, Luke. You know you couldn't exist without his light. Luke speaking. And your darkness, I suppose. Joe speaking. Light cannot exist without darkness. Back to Luke. I cannot help what I see. Lucy again. You were not born to see. You were born to reflect your father's light onto the earth so that my darkness can formulate into energy. Here, try some. Luke says, I will not drink of your destruction. 
to Lucy. But you loved those creatures. How can you say... Back to Luke. I loved them alive. Joe says, Don't interrupt your mother, Luke. You are spoiled by the light in your veins. Luke says, She imitates your creative nature by destroying everything you've... Joe interrupts. Now listen to me, Luke. This is very serious. One day we will not be around anymore to watch over you and your Job. Luke says, I wish you wouldn't. Joe says, stop interrupting me, Luke. Luke says, you stop interrupting me. Lucy speaks, don't delude yourself, Luke. We can destroy you and your earth with the blink of an eye, and we will. Your incarnation is dangerous. Without our dichotomy, this world would be out of control. Luke says, you say control like it's a good thing. If you'd hear me out, even your incarnations would be free. And scene. We haven't heard the last of Job, but those who read the multiverse cartographer without first reading the mouse books will be missing essential pieces of the puzzle. The next time Job appears in the story, he is a very old man, still living in the caves at the base of Maxwell Montes on Venus. In the next episode of this series, I'll read the two chapters which come just after Dr. Fathom in The Multiverse Cartographer, in which we'll meet young Charles Rubin as a small child in his home universe, as well as a 13-year-old Blythe in the abandoned subways of New World Center. Until then. Mm-hmm.